couple things. One is uh, the last time I was in the school, uh, I don't know if any of you know about New York Cares. They, uh, they put on volunteer opportunities for people around the city, and so I actually helped uh, with a, a before-school math program from 7.30 to 8.30 um, every Thursday morning for about, I don't know, three or four months. It was a beautiful opportunity. So one of the things I always talk with churches about is there are existing uh, opportunities for us to be involved in the community, to support and serve the community that we're a part of. Um, I got to meet many kids, parents, teachers, find out about the needs and opportunities that were involved in the school. Um, and it was just a really neat opportunity to be involved in all of that. So um, it's neat to be back here. S secondly, what, I, what I'm really excited about is the opportunity to be here because um, Russell and I met over coffee, I don't know, a couple years ago at least, um, at Annex, one of my favorite coffee shops in Fort Greene. And this was before this was happening. And it was just a small group of people that were committed to seeing a church started in Brooklyn. And so to be here today and to like see the fruit of labors, of prayers, is such a beautiful thing. To see that God is working and moving and providing and leading and directing. He's inviting and using the gifts and the people that have made up this church to, to build and bless his church here. It's such a privilege to see how this is working, how this is moving. Because part of my job is, as soon as a church is planted in the neighborhood, I get to know them because I want to find out what they're doing, how to support them and learn from them and, and find ways to connect them to the neighborhood. So that's particularly what Trellis does. One of the things that um, I, I believe in is, is two things. One, that neighborhoods work better when they work together. So churches, nonprofits, social agencies, um, other churches, wor and, and working together. What does it look like for a neighborhood to think strategically and carefully about trying to bless and serve and support the neighborhood that they're, they're meeting in, that they're living in, that they're seeking to support? So I, my, my heart is to see that the, the, these organizations find ways, purposeful and active ways to be involved in how they can support and bless and care for each other and the neighborhoods they're living and serving in. So a couple of ways for your church to be involved in that. I'd love to stay around and talk to you more about Trellis afterwards, but a couple of quick ways that your church can be involved in that. First is that we are doing a job mentoring program serving kids in public housing, kids age 14 to 18. And so I've been inviting non-businesses, uh, other churches who have, who have businesses, or if you're a creative and you are uh, involved in textiles, or if you um, do photography or video work and you just need help, uh, you can provide an opportunity for a kid to run cable or set up um, lighting or teach them how to sew or be, need administrative help. This is an opportunity for you to bless a kid who might not otherwise have an opportunity in public housing, focused specifically um, in the Gowanus houses where I've been advocating and, and supporting the, 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 those residents for the last number of years. Um, we already have 16 kids in the program, four kids have gotten jobs already with neighborhood um, businesses, and there's a second round of kids that are eager to look for work. This week we're actually going to be walking the neighborhood with their resumes, introducing them to some business owners. But if you are a small business owner, if you know a small business owner, again, if you're a creative and you could think, I could, I could give some money in a couple of hours a week to a kid to, to, to open their eyes to the opportunities that exist around these creative opportunities, please come and talk to me. Secondly, we do an, uh, an event called uh, Community Heroes. Where we're invited into neighborhoods to celebrate overlooked neighborhoods and people making those neighborhoods and those places great. So we're doing that with Gowanus Houses. It's a public housing complex very close to here. And four heroes will be celebrated as part of their Old Timers Day on August 12th. And what we do is we partner with photographers from the neighborhood 
and then we go in, take their portraits, have a brief bio about who those people are, this, the wonderful work that they're doing, and then these band, they go onto a banner that's then unveiled as part of Old Timers Day, where the entire um, complex and all those who have lived in, the, in that complex for a number of years come and celebrate over a weekend as, as to what it means to be family together. And we unveil the banners there. So we're inviting uh, community groups to, to support that by um, helping to, to support the banners. The banners cost about $100 each to, to produce. That also provides opportunity to create programming out of this. So if you're interested, again, finding out more about that, if your church wants to support that, um, please come and talk to me afterwards. I'm, I'm in no rush to get out of here today. So um, love to spend time with you. And you guys do lunch afterwards and some hot place upstairs, I guess. So I've heard it already. So... Um, so that just gives you a little bit about what I do. And lastly, just recognizing, um, I, I, I moved to New York in 2008 to take over a church that had been started in 2004, labored faithfully, fits and spurts, watched the church rise and fall, and then in 2013 I closed that church um, for lots of reasons. And so I don't, I don't come to you to talk from a place of always having succeeded in everything I've done, but we recognize that there's opportunities that we learn from failure, right? We often recognize that some of the most important lessons we learn are in the midst of the most difficult moments, right? And so I want you to know that as one who has standing before you, I don't come as one who has succeeded in everything I've done, who is an expert in anything I'm going to be telling you about today as it relates to God's word, but one who's a fellow practitioner, one who's learning of what it means to follow and listen to the Lord, to trust him, to listen to his call, to invite his spirit to lead me and direct me and to refine me in the midst of all these things. So um, with that, I'm just gonna pray for us, um, that, that God would meet us and teach us, uh, direct us, and that we'd hear from him clearly through his word today. Jesus, thank you uh, for the ways you've already ministered, um, that we take just this moment to re remember that it, it's no small thing to gather freely and lift our voices to you. It does so much for our souls to, to pause and to reconsider, to remember who you are. Jesus, what you've done, what you've accomplished, what you promise. These are important moments for us as your, your church, as your gathered people. And I pray now as we enter into this time of receiving from you by hearing from your word, I pray that you'd give us open ears, that there are many distractions and cares and worries and burdens that we've probably taken into the room with us. And I pray, Father, instead of those being distractions, that they would refine and inform how we hear today. I pray that you'd help us to hear your word in a way that helps us to grow in our love for you, in our appreciation, in our submission, in our trust. Father, be any, beyond anything that I say, I pray that your word would breathe life into your people today. And we'd go away not just with information, but be transformed as we consider what you say to us and then consider the invitation to obey and to follow what you invite us into. We trust you and we thank you for this time together. We pray this all in Jesus' name, amen. So I love that you're going through this series in Exodus. Um, a lot of churches don't go through Old Testament, they focus on the New Testament and it's beautiful that you're taking this time. So if you have your Bible or a gadget or however you look in your Bible, we're gonna be looking at Exodus five through seven today. 
If you don't have either a gadget or a Bible, I'm sure the person near you would be glad if you looked on with them. Cozy up. If you don't know their name, you can introduce yourself, all those things. But we want to be looking into God's Word today as we consider what it means for us to be a people of this paradigm, this idea of what it means to allow the truths of what Exodus tells us this cultural and reality of what it means to be a people on a mission towards a purpose of being conformed to the image of God as a community as we consider what it says in Exodus for us. And particularly my heart, and from this section of Scripture, I don't know about you, but particularly we think about this in the realm of the, the day and age we face today. The day and age, the culture we're in, and all the needs and the burdens and the worries and the fears and the issues that surround us. How do we address things like immigration and racism and poverty and the injustices that, that surround us every day? We wake up and another news item seems to remind us again and again that this world is groaning. There is so much that needs to be restored and redeemed and fixed and changed in this society. I don't know about you, but when I have these moments, maybe you've turned off all of the news feeds because you just can't deal with all those realities that seem to bombard you every day. But for me, very quickly, as we think about all the news items that confront us every day, both nationally, internationally, and locally, it can feel very overwhelming. It can feel like, how can I wade into all these issues? How can I address them? How can I face these things or address these things or, or work towards change in these things? And then particularly, how can we as a church be a voice of reason and hope and grace and love in the midst of all these things? It seems daunting and overwhelming to be a community of reconciliation and grace and hope in the midst of the daunting task of the overwhelming odds and, and needs and concerns and burdens and struggles that we seem to face day by day. Well, this morning we're going to take a look at this mission launch that God is calling his people out of Exodus that begins with a calling that he lays on a man named Moses. And we can learn increasingly about what it means to be this people on mission for the redemption, the renewal, and the support and the blessing of the world. How do we learn from Exodus in the midst of this? And how do we learn in the midst of this to be what one of my historical heroes, John Perkins, calls the beloved community? How do we learn in the midst of this to be the beloved community, a community that has a counter-narrative, not in a way that it's proud, but in a way that it's compelling, that we have a different narrative, that we have a paradigm that informs the way we think about the world and each other and others that's compelling and invitational? How do we learn from Exodus about these things? Well, it's the paradigm and really a paradox of two things, one, resting and resisting. Resisting and resting. Two words that you would not think about going together. Resisting and resting. Because in our day and age, if you've walked around the neighborhood, it happens very often and there are all sorts of different views of this. And you walk around and you see all sorts of signs and all sorts of different places. Resist, resist, resist. If you're on your Facebook wall, people are talking about resisting. But it's important we understand in the midst of our current culture and our current day and age that we understand why we're resisting and what we're resisting. Because again, particularly as we think about our Christian worldview as how it informs the idea of how we move out into the world to be hope, hope givers, reconcilers, 
gracious, patient lovers of Jesus desiring to give that love to others, that we understand that there are realities and responses. Realities and responses that we face and that we wade into all the time. There are realities that we have to recognize that are working, worldviews that are out there that we need to be aware of, that if we're not careful, we succumb to, that we fall into the trap of believing and living out. And so when we say we resist, it's important we understand what we're resisting in view of the realities and the worldviews, but also responses. Right, when we're confronted with these injustices, when we're confronted with these realities, when we're confronted with these struggles, how do we respond in the midst of those things? Individually and as a community, how do we respond? Well, again, it's about learning about to resist and to rest. And so again, if you have your Bible, a bit of background into how this works itself out, starting in Exodus chapter four, we get this idea of what it means to trust God in the resistance of autonomy to resist autonomy. Because what happens here is Moses gets his marching orders from God with some very powerful means. He gives him these signs that he's to display for the people of how he is being led and directed and empowered by God. But like in Moses' situation, like us in many situations, when we're given a task or an opportunity or when we see something that is broken or needs alleviating or needs to be restored or redeemed or supported, we're often very quick to fall back into the human tendency of thinking, how am I going to fix this? How am I going to fix this? Look at Exodus 4, and particularly in verse 10. Moses' response, as he's considering the reality of what God is inviting him into, his first response, in the midst of having these powerful moments with God, burning bush, right, serpent, and all these things, all these moments when leaders are given these powerful moments with God, all of a sudden, the response very quickly turns to, I'm just not qualified to do this. I, I don't have internally the means or the capacity to do this. 4 verse 10. Moses says, Oh Lord, I have never been eloquent, neither in the past nor since you have spoken to your servant. I'm slow of speech and of tongue. You see, in the midst of all the things that, that God has done and shown, Moses, his trip switch in his heart and our human tendency is to fall back into the idea of autonomy. How am I going to fix this. And particularly as we think about how am I going to fix this, the problem ensues if we recognize very quickly our limitations. But focusing more on our limitations often leads to our stopping. Our paralysis. You see, we have to get over this notion. If we're going to be a resisting community to resist the evil, to resist the brokenness, we have to think more broadly than just my capacities. Because my capacities very quickly turn into my limitations. And and again, we see this later on in Exodus 6 verse 12. After all these things, after this beautiful section of Scripture that we're going to focus on in a few minutes, again, Moses, having had these promises spoken over him from God of the reality of who God is and what he promises and what he promises to do and who he is and how he's been faithful, again, Moses in Exodus 6 verse 12 says the same thing. He reminds God, as if God didn't know already, of his own ineptitude. 
of his inability. And if we're not careful as we think about the struggles and the needs and the burdens and the worries and the concerns and the issues, all the brokenness and all the needs and the struggles that exist outside of this space that we have to face as we leave, and we think, how am I going to fix the brokenness in my workplace? How am I going to fix the brokenness in my family? How am I going to fix the brokenness on my block? How am I going to fix the brokenness in our, in our world? How am I going to address the needs and the concerns and the burdens of my community and my neighborhood, of my school? We quickly become overwhelmed because we're focusing first on our own capacities which turn quickly into our limitations. And we have to offer a better narrative, a better paradigm than just thinking about our own abilities. Now secondly, this also creeps up in thinking not only in our own inabilities, but we find this, this autonomy takes place in thinking about our own self. We only think about ourselves in terms of how to address the problem. And I'm not gonna get into all the details of this, but because it's a very strange text. But the second, we need to recognize that our autonomy also creeps up and not recognizing that God is going to bring other people around us to support us in the mission. There's this really odd moment where Moses is given the directions in Exodus chapter 5 and he's given this, this, these marching orders from God as to what he's inviting Moses to do to lead the people out of slavery. And then he's about to go in to lead, the, to lead this discussion with Pharaoh and God is, is set to kill Moses because he's, done, he's forgotten to do something. Very important, to circumcise his son. Because the circumcision of his son was, a, was, a, was, a, was a, a recognition that he trusted in the promises and the hope and the direction of God, the covenant that God had established with his people to lead his people and direct his people. And so his wife, and this is one of those like Bible memory things, right? Moses' wife like never gets recognition in the scripture other than this one section. So I do these like tests like who is, what's Moses' wife's name? Unless you're reading Exodus like no one can remember. Zipporah, Zipporah. So in the text, Zipporah gets up in the middle of the night and circumcises Moses' son to alleviate the issue because Moses has dropped the ball on taking responsibility in his home to lead his son and prepare his family for this mission. And so what we need to remember is that when God's inviting us as an individual to step into the brokenness, to step into the needs and the desires and the concerns, he's also going to raise up a people around us to support us and to invite us to, to hold up our hands, to care for us and to lead us. Because here's why. We don't see everything clearly. We're going to miss things. And as Moses did, missed important things foundational things that needed to be set in place before he stepped into the mission that God was inviting him to. And so I need people around me. See, the, the reality is we live with this autonomous worldview that says, I can do it, I can be there, I can get this accomplished, but we're quickly faced with the realities of our own limitations and struggles. And that's why God said, it's not good for man to be alone. We need people around us that help us see our blind spots, that help fill in the things that we don't know or can't see. There are things that we don't know and can't see. There are things that we don't have and can't have. There are things that we've never experienced and will never experience. And we need people around us to help us move into these opportunities of being a blessing. 
of what it means for us to be the beloved community together, to not fall into the trap of thinking that I can do this on my own. I can alleviate the concerns and the burdens and the struggles of my workplace, of my neighborhood, of my school on my own. Because when we think of those things, do, do we think about there are other people in my church that can support me and pray for me as I step into these moments? There are other people in my church that can support me and help me as I, as I consider these realities, as I want to step in and provide support to these areas of concern. There's, there's this uh, great article that, that appeared in the New York Times last week about the reality of poverty. And one of the things it was talking about is this idea of how there's, there's shame associated with the majority white culture about accepting food stamps. And that's largely because of the white majority culture thinking that we can manage on our own. We, there's this radical autonomy that thinks, I don't need anyone's help, I don't need anyone's handout, I don't need anyone's support. And that goes, flies in the face of the paradigm of the reality of what God is inviting a people into. It's not good for man to be alone. And so we need others. And so to resist, we need to first resist autonomy. To think that we can manage, that we can lead, that we can serve, that we can alleviate on our own. So where are those places? Where are those places where I think I can do it on my own? Where am I very aware of my limitations? And instead of being frustrated by those things, it's an invitation from God to invite others in. To invite others in. It's like when you go to Ikea, right? If you've been to Ikea before, and they have the instruction manual, right? And you'd think I'd lear have learned this, so I, if you, I, you know, you get the instructions out, it has like these, all these pieces, and you have like, I have no idea where all these pieces are supposed to go, but there's an instruction manual that's very vague, and it's like these drawings that don't have any sort of descriptions, and so you're like, ah, I can figure it out. So you start putting it together, and if you've ever had this experience at Ikea, but you start to put together the dresser, and then you're halfway through, and then like there's these leftover pieces. Like, where do these pieces go? And then at some point you realize, oh, like the drawer's gonna fall out because I didn't put the screw in properly. And this has happened twice. You think I've learned the first time, but twice I've actually had to undo almost all of the, the, the item and redo it with the instructions. Because we think, we look at a situation, we think, I can do this, right? How hard can it be? It's from Ikea, right? It's not rocket science. But that's why they have the instructions, right? But we think that we can go out and fix these problems and these issues without following the instructions, God's heart and his manual for our life, which says, I'm inviting you into a community, that you're not meant to alleviate all the world's needs and burdens and, and desires by yourself. There's a manual that I've set before you. It's called the Word and the body that helps us to understand how we do this stuff together. So where are those places? Am I willing to ask for help? What does that say about me if I'm not willing? You see, pastors and leaders are not immune for this because this idea of autonomy, and again, just to tell you how easy it is to fall into the trap of thinking I can do this. 
I had been preparing for the sermon. I, I forget, Ru Russell asked me to preach two months ago or something. And so things are coming up. So I started working on it a couple weeks ago and I got to Friday morning, right? And I'm reviewing and thinking about all my notes and, and God just totally crushes me. And he's like, you haven't asked, you haven't prayed about this. You haven't prayed about this message. Like I had just been working and reading and putting stuff together and just totally thinking about my own wisdom, my own insights and my own history and all the resources. And God was like, you, you haven't prayed about this. Autonomy, right? I can manage. I can do this. I can figure this out. And God keeps reminding us, no, it's not good that you're alone. It's not good that you're alone because you have blind spots. You have limitations. And those are opportunities for me to care and me to support and me to lead and me to direct you. To resist means we first need to resist autonomy, the cultural reality of autonomy. The second, and again, why it's important that we look at this text from this perspective is this. When we look at a text of scripture like this, here's the tendency. We always think of ourselves like Moses, right? Uh, we're always the winner, right? We fall into the trap of thinking, be like Moses, be like David, be like Jesus, be like Peter, right? But here's the reality. We're often way more like Pharaoh than we are like Moses. And why this is important is if we're going to resist, the second thing we need to resist is cynicism. Cynicism. If we're going to be agents of change in the midst of the community that we're invited by God to be a part of in helping to renew and restore and help flourish, we need to resist cynicism. 5 verse 2. Moses goes to Pharaoh, and Pharaoh's first response, and, and the translations don't get at sort of the nuances of how this conversation goes, because it would take too many words, but it's this idea of Moses goes and says, you need to let us go into the wilderness for three days to have a worship service. Okay, and we'll come back to why that's important in a minute. And Pharaoh comes back and says, who is the Lord and why should I listen to him? Because in, in Pharaoh's mind, if this God that is so great that Moses is describing is so great, then I should have been able to see him work. I should have been able to see his miracles very clearly and obviously through his people and through this, the situations that I've been confronted by and by the world itself. I should have seen this God. Where is this God? If this God is so great, then why can't I see him? Why can't I see his works? Why can't I hear his voice? Why isn't he speaking directly to me? This cynicism, this doubt that God is so great, that God is so good. Or to think about it another way, as Janet Jackson said years ago, what have you done for me lately? <laughs> right? If you're so great, God, what have you done for me lately? Some of you will have to go and listen to that song, and it's okay. <laughs> You'll enjoy it. Um, but just to think about the realities of how this works is we can think, well, of course, Pharaoh should know that all these miracles and all the works of God and all the, the creation screams the realities of God, but the reality is we can so easily fall into the trap of, God, what have you done for me lately? And we quickly turn from trust to cynicism. Or think about another way. Think of the ways in which, if we're honest, these words and these thoughts creep into our mind. 
oh, this will never change. The world will never change. I will never change. My coworker will never change. My community will never change. Poverty will never change. Racism will never change. They'll never, things will never change. Or another way of thinking about it, this always happens. This always happens. My kids always react this way. My boss always asks me this way. This always happens. The, the subway's always late. Kind of is, but. But we recognize, right, that it's cynicism. It's looking at a situation only the, from the perspective of what I see. And what I see is so limited. What I see is so limited. And if I only look at the world from the vantage point of what I see, of course I'm going to be cynical. Because I only see brokenness. I only see very short, brief moments in time of how things work instead of seeing a long narrative of God's promise to renew and redeem all things. So cynicism creeps in. Where is God? And, and again, it's not just Pharaoh that falls into this trap. The people fall into this trap. You look later as how Moses goes to the people and this cynicism plays out where... The, Moses saying, I'm going to lead you out of slavery. And the people saying, it's getting worse. Where is God now? 521 to 23. As Moses goes through the people, they're like, you're making this worse for us, Moses. If you just shut your mouth, we could just be good slaves and not have to worry about these people throwing us under the bus consistently. Where is God now? How is God going to fix this? And then Moses even goes a step further and blames God. God, when I open my big mouth, things get worse. I should just keep my mouth shut. Cynicism. How can God do this? Why would God do this? This isn't what I wanted. This isn't going to change. This always happens. I speak up and then something worse happens. So I'm just not going to speak up anymore. I tell my friends that I went to church and then they stop talking to me. So I just won't tell them about church anymore. I offer to pray for my boss and they have a strange look. So I just won't offer to pray for people. We have to resist cynicism to be a people of hope, to only look at the world from the vantage point of what I see, because what I see is limited. What I see is temporary. What I see is not the full picture. It's like we look at the world through sad Snapchat filters, right? Or Instagram faces, right? For we only look at the world through the sad lens, right? And God's like, there is more than the sad lens. And there is more than the Snapchat lens. So for honest, where are the situations, the people, the struggles that we think will never change? To move towards being a community of grace and hope, we need to address and resist the cynicism that can so easily rise up in our hearts. Because we can't be people of hope when we're full of cynicism. We can't be people of grace when we're full of doubt. Now, that's not to say that God can't meet us in our doubt and refine us in our doubt, but if we're feeding and fueling that doubt, how can we offer hope? How can we offer hope? But also, we have not just this idea of cynicism, but what, what, what ends up happening is this reality of thinking about people as problems. 
or hindrances. And so the, the next thing we need to resist is commodifying. It's not a word we think of often when we think of people, but this is the worldview that pervades, right? People are only as good as what they offer me, as what they'll give me, as what they promise to me, right? I'm, I'm only going to like this person because of what they can give me. I only want to date this person because of what they will give me, intimacy. They'll give me happiness. I only want this job because it will give me what I want, my money, so I can have my happiness and do what I want. See, the Israelites in five, verses 4 and 5 were only valuable to Pharaoh so long as they were working, right? When Moses invites them to take a Sabbath, Mo Pharaoh's not so happy about that idea because the, he only looks at the Israelites as something to be used for his own purposes. And so to quote another New York poet, Nas, sleep is the cousin of death, and so I'll sleep later. Right? Get back to work. You can sleep when you're dead. Now I need you making bricks so you can keep making, building my kingdom. You're only as valuable as what you've produced for me today. But we can so fall into this trap of thinking that I'm only going to look at people based on what they can give me. I'm only going to look at my community and my city based on what it can give me. And when it stops giving me that thing, I just discard it. When my job no longer gives me what I think it should give me, I just discard it. I go to a different job. When I, my neighborhood no longer is that chic, hip, happening place, I just discard it and go somewhere else. When my friends no longer are about my desires and my plans and my dreams and making sure that I'm moving forward in my hopes, then I just discard them and move on to other friends. We commodify people. You see, there's this fascinating, I don't recommend all of the episodes because some of them are just crazy and, and some of them are just like very strange. But there's this uh, um, uh, Netflix series called Black Mirror. Some of you have probably watched it. And there's this episode about how there's like this Instagram culture, right? If some of you have seen it. And it's the idea of like people have to constantly like each other on Instagram or Instagram-esque because it's not actually Instagram because Instagram would be very upset if they were actually used in this way. But they have to keep liking each other so that their credit rate can be building because if you know the right people, you get access to the right opportunity. And there's this scene, I'm ruining it for you a little bit if you haven't seen it, but there's a scene where the woman's trying to get to this wedding and she, she doesn't have any good friends and so she tries to go and rent a car and she can't get access to the good cars because she doesn't have good enough friends. So she has to rent this broken car with no air conditioning to try and get to, the, to a wedding and the car inevitably breaks down. But this is how we can suddenly think. It's like, I need to be friends with these people because these are the things that they give me. I need to be in this neighborhood because these are the things that it gives me. I need to be in this job because these are the things it gives me. I'm only looking for the vantage point of what it provides me. The Israelites are only as valuable as what they're giving me, what they're providing me. To be a community that seeks flourishing of a community of people, a city, we need to move beyond reducing things around us to what they give us, to simply looking at things for what they give us. We need to resist that worldview of commodifying everything around us. Everything is a commodity to be used for my purposes, for my goals, for my dreams and my accomplishments. Because again, what happens then is people inevitably become problems to be fixed 
or hindrances to be removed. Right? If we're thinking about the issues that surround it, oh, it's just a problem I need to fix, then I can move on to something else, or they're a hindrance, they just need to get out of the way so I can accomplish what I want. So how do I view the church as a start? How do I view my community? Am I here because of what it can give me? Have I reduced my community to what it can give me? Have I ever reduced my workplace to what it can give me? Have I reduced my neighborhood only to what it can give me? Have I reduced my spouse, my kids, to only what it can give me? They can give me. God is inviting us to resist that notion of commodifying people around us. Pharaoh was very upset when they were, he was confronted with the reality, like, I might lose these people because they're providing me with so much and I'm only looking at it from the vantage point of what they give me and when they don't give me what I want, I'm upset. We need to resist the notion of commodifying. I don't know what time I'm supposed to finish. So get, and, <laughs> I didn't think to check when I started. We're, we're, getting, we're getting to the second part in a minute. Next, though, another resisting the notions, all these things. And it's, it's important. It's important that these are the realities and the responses that we live in the midst of, right? These, this is the water we drink, the air we breathe, the human experience that we're subjected to every day. And if we're not careful, we find ourselves responding and thinking these ways. And we need to resist them. Resist them. We need to next, though, resist Privilege. This is a word that's been thrown around a lot and it's, there's all sorts of helpful and unhelpful videos on the internet about how to appropriately understand things like white privilege, but it's important we understand the nature of this text in terms of understanding that if we want to be a people of redemption and reconciliation, that we resist the idea of privilege gone amok. Because here's what's happening. Pharaoh, when the people are coming to him saying, we need a break, we're going to go into the for three days. First, they're just asking for three days. He doesn't know that long-term they're going to leave for good. But for three days, they're asking to just go in out and have a worship service where they can rest and Sabbath and ref be refreshed by each other's presence and be with God. So Pharaoh gets upset, and not just gets upset, but responds and says, okay, you guys want this break. You're being lazy. Why don't you, instead of you guys having this break, here's what I'm going to make it harder for you. And he takes away the straw, Right? So they have to go not only make these bricks, but they have to go and find all the straw to make the bricks. And it's going to require twice as much work. But Pharaoh was wielding power and position and failing to understand the place of privilege and access that he has. He's been put in Egypt. The straw and the bricks and the, and the sand and all those things are things that have been entrusted to him. He didn't choose where to be born. He didn't get all those things on his own. He didn't make the straw. See, we have been entrusted with these vast economic and environmental resources, and it expects now that with less, they're going to still produce as much. And in fact, in 5.8, if you have your Bible open, you realize he, in, in one of the translations, actually calls them lazy when they start to go back into production. You see, we assume that if we're not careful, that everyone starts on a level playing field and, is, and then can produce the same amount. We have to resist the notion that everyone starts from the same playing field. Because there are economic, 
There are systemic realities that lead some people to start from a different place. Why aren't you keeping up? Verse four, 5, verse 14. Why aren't you keeping up? Why aren't you keeping up the quota that you had kept up before? It's because you've oppressed us in another way. There's an economic, social, systemic reality that is causing us to produce less. Systemic limitations that have been imposed on some, restrictions and hurdles. Ones that without thinking, sometimes we place on others. Pharaoh lost sight of the gracious provision and assumed he could use people how he wanted and assume the same end. So we need to be aware of the positions of privilege and power we've been put in. And what am I doing with those positions of power and influence? As a majority culture, which most of us fall into, how do we address the realities of the positions of power and influence we've been put in? Recognizing that these are places of gracious provision. And I'm not meant to use all the things in my possession for my own selfish end. I'm supposed to use these things for a bigger purpose of helping others flourish. Recognizing not everyone starts from the same level playing field because there are systematic injustices that have led some people to start from further back in the chain. What do I do with that? How do I address that? How do I deal with that? Thinking about it more specifically, do I make assumptions about people's struggles and situations? If you work hard, you get what you want. If you put your resume out there and, work, and go to the right school, you get the right job. Not for everyone. How do we address that reality? How do we deal with that reality? Do I, do I make assumptions? Well, again, what's happening in this text? Well, they're just lazy. They're not working hard enough. No, there are systematic realities that have led to them producing less. What has been entrusted to me graciously? How am I doing with what I have? What am I doing with what I have? This gets at these ideas of privilege. How do we do this? How do we address this in our heart, in our lives, and be a, a community of reconciliation and hope, saying there are realities that are outside of our control, but that we're aware of that we want to deal with and address and talk about because not everyone starts from the same place. Not everyone starts from the same starting line. And how do we move and advocate and support and pray for and alleviate these areas to overcome injustices? Lastly, actually, I'll just skip that one because I, I do want to move to the second half. So we, how do we resist? How do we resist? It's not just a matter of brute force, right? Because if we don't, we just fall into the trap of the first problem, right? I can do this. I'm just going to get up. I'm going to not think about myself. I'm going to not commodify people. I'm going to be aware of my privilege. I'm going to move into these things with different ideas, and I'm going to do this, and I'm going to... And God's like, yeah, but you're still thinking about yourself. You're, you're doing exactly what I said not to do with Moses in the beginning, like thinking about how you're going to fix all this by yourself. So the reality is the opposite. We need to focus on resting. And this beautiful text that I want to read for us, because in the midst of this, in these cultural realities and these, these responses that can so easily pervade our life, we need to think more clearly about resting. Resting. And resting in three ways out of this text, particularly uh, Exodus 6, verses 1 to 8. It says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh. 
Because of my mighty hand, he will let them go. Because of my mighty hand, he will drive them out of his country. God also said to Moses, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I have also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, where they lived their lives as aliens. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the Israelites, whom the Egyptians are enslaving, and I have remembered my covenant. Therefore, says the, say to the Israelites, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my own people, and I will be your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians and I will bring you to the land I swore with uplifted hand to give Abraham to Isaac and to Jacob. I will give it to you as possession. I am the Lord. So how do we resist these false notions and realities and responses? We rest first. We rest first in God's power in God's power. You see, we look not at the world and think, how am I going to fix this? But we ask God, God, how do you want to fix this? How do you want to make these things right? What is your promise of power that you've made available to your church? How are you going to alleviate and address these things? The promise of God's power. Instead of looking only to ourselves, we learn to trust in one who has made and knows all things. The one who made the world with his voice. Limitless power. The one who turns staffs into snakes, who would part rivers, the one who needs nothing but gives access to all things. That one who has divine, unlimited, unyielding, gracious, sufficient power. We rest in his power. Secondly, we rest in his presence. We rest in his presence. See, these things are the things that undo these ideas of thinking we're on our own. Nothing will change. We rest in his power. If you think about, again, the text, when when God is reminding all the things that he's going to do and has done, one quick thing that helps us remember that it undoes cynicism is this. God heard the groanings of his people. God is not distant. He's not uncaring or unknowing of the struggles that we face. He hears our groanings. Hears our groanings. The one who is not far removed from our struggles, he hears our cries for help. In fact, the incarnation as we step into the New Testament is the reality of this, that God steps into our junk, steps into our mess to know and experience and understand on a human level the realities and the struggles and the fears and the limitations that we face as human beings. His presence, he tabernacled among us to understand our human experience with his own flesh so that we could know that God knows what it's like to experience the human existence. His presence. And not just that, he takes it one step further and promises that if we trust in him and put our hope in him, repent, stop trying to fix ourselves and trust in him, that he promises to live in us. His presence goes with us in every moment, in every place, wherever we are, God is with us and in us the promise of his presence. I will be their God and they will be my people. How do we know this? Because he dwells inside us. 
and the spirit that raised Christ from the dead lives in us to redeem us and restore us, to make us anew, to give us power to follow the commands that he gives us. We trust his presence and we rest in his promises, a promise to finish what he started. That land that I said I would give to you, I will give to you. It might not look like you want it to look. In fact, the promise of rest still stands for us today because this place is ultimately not our home. We anticipate one day we'll go to be with God. But God keeps his promises. A promise to finish what he started in our lives. To make us fully into his image. A promise to be patient and slow to anger. See, the beauty of this is going back and as Moses gets the marching order from God and he right away says, God, you got the wrong guy. You got the wrong guy. I'm just not good with words. I'm not going to be able to figure this out. I'm going to make a mess of this. And you think God, God could have said, okay, who's next? Forget it. I'm going to someone else. And again and again, the scripture, one of the most quoted scriptures, God is slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. God has promises to be slow to anger and patient with us. When we constantly try and work without him, live like he didn't exist, doubt his existence, doubt his promises, he is patient. He promises to be patient and gracious and merciful to us. He promised that he accepts us not because of what we produce. We live in a worldview that says you're only as good as what you've produced, of what you've accomplished, of where you live, of what you have, or who your friends are. And God says, none of that stuff matters to me. What matters to me is you're an image bearer that I want to redeem and renew by making you into the image of Jesus, my son, and love you with an unfailing love because you trust not in what you accomplished, but in what he finished. What he finished. The finished work of Jesus. 6 verse 7, he claims us as his own because he promises to do the work of redemption that we could not do. We could not fulfill the law's demands. And so he does it for us. A promise to change us, to really change us from the inside out. He doesn't promise just lead us out of bad situations, but he promises to renew us from the inside out. That the problem of human all the human problems start in the heart. And so God says, I'm not just going to superficially fix things in neighborhoods. I'm going to change people, redeem them from the inside out so their desires, their longings change and they want different things and they move into a neighbor and says, I don't want to think about my life only from the vantage point of what all these things give me, but I've been entrusted with so much and I want to serve and give my life away because God in his essence is self-giving. Everything I have belongs to him and he's graciously loaned it to me. And so I want to use it for purposes bigger than my own. A promise that God is always doing more than we can see. Right, the cynicism. We look at the world and think, God isn't doing anything, but he's always doing more than we can see. Always. I always point to this with, we never, like a church, maybe you did it, but most churches don't. Like, Good Friday, Holy Sunday, right? No one talks about what happens on Saturday, right? The Bible gives very little indication as to what's happening. There's a one sort of strange text that Jesus goes down into hell to claim those who have, been, who have died before he was, 
he was incarnate to, to bring them into to, to paradise. But whatever that situation, here's the reality. God didn't stop working on Saturday, right? It's not God like, oh, pause, pause button, redemption just takes a break on Saturday, then re-ups on Sunday. He's always doing more than we can see. So when we think nothing is changing, nothing is happening, God is always behind the scenes doing far more than we can ask or imagine. A promise to give us what we don't deserve. A promise to never leave us or forsake us. A promise to lead us to good pastures. A prom- I mean, the words again, again, this is where we find rest for our souls. These realities form the foundations of what we are as a community. And this is why, again, 5-1, this is why this, this is why important. This is what I close with. When Moses goes to Pharaoh and says this, we have to go into the wilderness to worship for three days, some of us might think, that seems kind of odd, right? Don't you just want to leave? <laughs> like, why do you need to go into the wilderness to worship for three days? Because they're so, the people of God had forgotten these promises, They'd been scattered and were working hard and forgotten. It was very important. They'd been scattered. They need to be gathered to remember the promises and the goodness of God. And so this is why the church gathered is so important. Because we go into a world that tells us all these things. And the gathered church comes together and says, no, we want to be about these things. To rest and remember God's promises, his power, his presence, his goodness, his favor, his love, his kindness, his grace. We need these things. And that's why singing is so important. It retunes our heart to the realities and the purposes and the glory of God. This is how we be a community of redemption and hope. It starts with these moments as our hearts are retuned to the realities of who God is and what he's promised. Then we can go and resist in appropriate and purposeful and redemptive ways. As Nietzsche once criticized the church in saying, they will have to sing better songs before I shall believe in their Redeemer. They will have to sing better songs before I believe in their Redeemer. This is the songs we hope we sing about. A God who sends His Son, His best, to receive us as His own, who doesn't reject us or condemn us who is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, who has given his son to redeem us and make us his own, that you are part of God's family when you trust in his son. And that means that God looks at you and doesn't say, I see failure or limitation or doubt or fear or worry or baggage or history. What I see is Jesus, the finished work, the full expression of the love of God poured out and over you and me. That's the song we sing. And that's how we learn to resist. Resist the idea of fixing ourselves, admit we're broken, and that Jesus is and was and always will be enough. We trust Jesus lived a life we couldn't live, one of perfect trust and obedience in God, and took the punishment for all my disobedience, all my mistrust, all my cynicism, all my autonomy, and, and gave me new life, one of hope and blessing and favor. And so I'm just going to pray for us and let these thoughts linger over us as we consider now as we go to the table and return to worship, that these things would inform our gratitude and our worship to God.
So Father, thank you for this day and this opportunity to just spend time with you, to rejoice in your goodness and to consider your love again, that we'd resist the notions of what the world and the culture around us invites us to, to think only of ourselves and only our own needs and wants and to consider again you, your love and your, ple your pleasure, your goodness, your favor, your kindness and grace. We thank you for all this. And Father, again, beyond anything I've said, I pray that your word by your spirit would breathe life into your people. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.